Well, that was amazing. I don't know that I really even need to preach my sermon after singing all of those songs because those songs are exactly what this message is all about this morning, the character of God. And David in Psalm 145, 145, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 145 writes this amazing song of praise. Yesterday, as I was finishing up everything at about noon, um, I uh, texted Patrick. I had a last-minute worship song request. I said, you know, I don't know if you've already put the worship set together, but I'd like to request it. Too late to request one song? And so he said, no, what, what would you like? And so I, I mentioned the song that I would like. He texted me back, oh, are there any others you'd like to sing? Sure. Blah, blah, blah. And... He texted back, very, you know, haha, that's a great list, and we'll see what we can do. That was what we sang this morning. We sang about the character of our God. We sang a theology from the psalm that we are preaching on, that we're listening to this morning, that David is going to instruct us from this morning. And yet, we're going to still sing a little bit more afterwards. I can't wait. Has anybody ever asked you the question? Who is God? Or even, what is God like? If he's asked you that question, have you been able to answer that question? Remember back in September 11th, 2001, that fateful day when so many people were asking, where is God? And they were asking in this country, where is God? This psalm answers that question. This psalm answers both of those questions. This is likely David's final psalm. He wrote 75 of the 150 psalms that we have compiled for us in the Psalter. And I think, my personal opinion, is that he saved his best for last. Psalm 23 is an amazing psalm. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, all of these psalms that you've heard Pastor Patrick preach on are amazing psalms. Some, some of you probably have your favorite psalm in there. As I've studied this one more and more, Psalm 19 used to be my favorite psalm. It still is. But boy, this psalm gives that one a run for its money. This psalm is an amazing song of praise to God. Rabbis in the time of David and even in the time of Christ would recite this psalm three times a day, thinking that it would gain them entrance in the world to come. There was even a declaration during after David's time, during the time after David, that whoever recited this psalm three times a day with mouth, heart, and tongue would be happy. How can you not be happy after singing those amazing songs? And that's exactly what this song is. The ancient church would sing this psalm during the midday meal because of verse 15. It is an acrostic psalm. Like other of David's psalms, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, he starts each successive verse in the Hebrew with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There are some definite connections between this psalm and Psalms 103 and 111. I'm going to let you read those at home. We don't have time to go into those connections this morning. But read this psalm, think about this psalm, then go home and read Psalm 103, read Psalm 111, and look at those connections. 
as far as outlining this psalm is concerned, there isn't one. Every commentator, every study Bible, everybody that has ever tried to outline this psalm has done it differently. There is no consensus. It's a difficult psalm to outline. But it is an incredible, powerful, incredibly powerful song of praise to God. As you can see, the crescendo effect of the progression of praise. David is praising Yahweh in verses 1 to 3. David calls on the covenant community of Yahweh to join in that praise in verses 4 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 20, all of creation joins in the celebration of praise to Yahweh. The heading of this psalm is a psalm of praise. This is the only psalm in the entire Psalter that has this heading. All psalms are praise psalms. Well, some are imprecatory, some are confessional, but many of these psalms are praise songs. This is the praise song in the Psalter. The theme of this psalm is praising God for every good reason especially extolling his divine greatness over all things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, said of this psalm, Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. So let's read this amazing psalm together. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, O my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works. I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. This morning, as we take a look at this psalm, I would like to look at seven character qualities of God so that we will be able to praise him daily. Seven character qualities of God so that we will be able to praise him daily. As far as an outline is concerned, 
Um, I am very rusty in my Hebrew, so I'm just going to make two points. Keep it simple, right? We're going to look at two points as we look at the seven character qualities of God. Basically, we're going to look at point number one, who God is, in verses 3 through 13. And point number two, what God does, from verses 14 to 20. Okay? Who God is and what God does. But before we look at these two points specifically, we need to notice how David structures this psalm and how he acknowledges God. David begins and ends this psalm in a very similar manner, basically, essentially, forming brackets around the entire psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2 and then verse 21. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. And then verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh. And all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. David moves from extolling God in the very generic sense of God, Elohim, if you will, in the Hebrew, to talking very personally about the covenant God of Israel and using his covenant name, Yahweh. That is an important name for us. David lifts his voice in praise and calls on God's name in a very personal manner. Yahweh is God's name for his covenant people. If you remember back in Exodus, when Moses was at the burning bush and God called him there and said, go to my people. And he said, well, who who should I say sent me? I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Yahweh. In Psalm 83, Asaph wants God to act against his enemies so that they will know his name. In Isaiah 42.8, God declares his name Yahweh to Isaiah and Israel in connection with his creation. It is my name and I will not give it to anyone else. Jeremiah 33, again, God connects his name to creation. It is, I am the creator God, Yahweh. We worship the creator God of the universe in a very personal way. And we can know the Creator by name. No other religious system, no other man-made religious system has that opportunity. To David, there was nothing better than being able to call on God by name and speak with Him personally. So, who is this God that we're talking about? Let's look at three descriptions of who Yahweh is. Three descriptions. Point number one is who is God? The first description of God that David gives us is that Yahweh is great. Yahweh is great. Look at verses 3 through 7. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. What What does David do as a result of seeing God's greatness? What does he do? He sees this unsearchable God, this incredible God, this God that created everything that we see, who saved a covenant people from the nations around them for his name's sake. David shares some parallel thoughts in these next five verses. He praises his works. He praises God for his creation. He looks at the world around him and he sees, wow, All of this was made in six days. 
And he praises God as a result of that. Then he declares his mighty acts. Thinking back into the history of Israel, what kind of mighty acts might David have been thinking about? How about the plagues in Egypt? Defeating Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Defeating the armies of the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, King Sihon, King Og, others. How about Joshua's long day as they're conquering the land, defeating the Amorites in Joshua 10? How God worked during the days of the judges through Gideon, Samson, and others. And then even his own battle with Goliath. Thinking about the mighty acts of God and on and on and on we could go. God works with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm for his people. Not only does he he extol those virtues, but he also meditates on the glorious splendor of his majesty. Moses, remember Moses reflected the glory of God at Mount Sinai, so much so that the the people were so afraid that they asked him to veil his face because of the radiance from Moses of his glory. And he meditates, he thinks about the glorious splendor of your majesty. He also meditates on his wonderful works, going again back to creation, meditating on that creative event. Then he goes on to say that men will speak of the power of your awesome acts. Don't we use that word awesome flippantly? I know I do. I do. And I can't help it sometimes. There is only one person who is awesome, and that is God. Our God, Yahweh, is an awesome God. Let's not ascribe awesomeness to anything else other than God. I will speak, men will speak of the power of your awesome acts. And then, later on in verse 6, they will tell of your greatness. And then he closes out this section in verse 7. Eagerly uttering the memory of your abundant goodness and shouting joyfully of your righteousness. David just stacks on all of these superlatives, all of these incredible descriptions when it comes to declaring the greatness of our God. He can't contain himself. When we think of the greatness of God, do we think this way? Do we think how David thinks? Do we speak how David speaks? Do we tell of his mighty acts to the people around us? Well, not only is Yahweh described as being great, but secondly, Yahweh is gracious. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow in anger, and great in loving kindness. I think David is here remembering God's words to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 5 where Moses desires to see God's face, and he says to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord tells him, I can't, because if you saw it directly, you would die. But here, let me put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand, and I'll pass by you. And as he passed by, he declared, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, gracious, abounding, Let me read it. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who lives, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is the, the type of God that Yahweh is, a gracious and loving God, a compassionate God. You know what grace is. You've probably learned the acrostic for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is getting what we do not deserve. We do not deserve the love of God. We do not deserve the love of Christ. We do not deserve the great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness on that cross. We don't deserve that. It is also closely connected to mercy. You know what mercy is. It's not getting what we do deserve. As sinners, we deserve hell. We deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. And yet, in his steadfast loving kindness, he is patient. Literally, long-suffering. Long-suffering. God is extending time to us so that we will repent of our sin, turn from our sin, turn to him, call on his name to save. All of this is connected to God's chesed. You've heard Patrick talk about this, this word, this Hebrew word, chesed. Grace, mercy, patient. It is his, his covenant love for his people. He's talked about, Pastor Patrick has, has mentioned this term and talked about this in the last five sermons that he's preached. This is a covenant-keeping love. It is the kind of love given by someone from whom I have the right to expect nothing. And yet they give me everything. It is the kind of love given by someone from whom I have the right to expect nothing. And yet they give me everything. That is the way that God loves his people. It is a steadfast love. It is always there. It is a loyal love. It is never going to be taken away. It is a gracious love, a love that we don't deserve, a merciful love, a kind love, an unexpected love. That is our God that loves us. And we see this this chesed love mentioned throughout the Psalms. In, in these last five sermons that Pastor Patrick has preached, Psalm 90, verse 14, Moses states how satisfying God's chesed is. Psalm 63, 12, David states that God's chesed is better than life. Better than life. Psalm 23, 6, David reassures his readers that God's chesed follows his covenant people no matter where they go. And then in the last two confession psalms that we've preached through, Psalm 51.1, David pleads for God's grace according to his chesed. And then in Psalm 32.10, David knows that God's, God's chesed surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh for forgiveness and salvation. That is something that we have to trust in. This, this chesed love is something that we have to live in and understand that God is never going to leave us nor forsake us. Probably the fullest picture in Scripture that we get of this, this chesed love is in Psalm 136. Just turn over really quickly. We're only going to read a couple of 
verses out of Psalm 136. The psalmist writes, Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And every other stanza throughout this psalm repeats those sentiments. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And the psalmist wants to demonstrate to the reader that Yahweh's covenantal, loyal, steadfast, loving kindness is his because he is the God of creation, he is sovereign over creation, and he is the Savior of creation. It is always connected back to creation. We cannot overemphasize God's chesed love toward us. We can't overemphasize it. And David wants to make that an emphasis in his psalm. The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in chesed. Well, we've seen two descriptions of who God is. God is great and God is gracious. Thirdly, God is good. Yahweh is good. Verses 9 through 13 show us the goodness of God. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. His works are evidence of his goodness and his mercy. Creation is how we see God's goodness in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Maybe we don't think about it in 115-degree heat, but it's good because I think it kills weeds or something. Okay? But we see the complexity of the created world around us that reveals God's goodness. And David extols creation in another crescendo of praise in these five verses. Could you imagine what would happen if God just let go of his creation? What would happen? Atomic energy would spin out of control and poof, we cease to exist. God's goodness is shown even to unbelievers through his common grace in sustaining his creation. God is good to all. Creation gives thanks. Creation blesses and glorifies God and talks of Yahweh's power. Creation makes known Yahweh's mighty acts and the glory of Yahweh's majesty and his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom whose dominion endures forever and ever and ever. Yahweh is good. So, Yahweh is great, gracious, and good. But wait a second, there's a little bit of a difficulty in this passage. For those of you that were reading the NAS, you didn't notice any hiccups or skips or anything. But for those of you that were following along in the ESV, I skipped a verse, didn't I? Because there is a fourth description, so we'll call this one three prime, because it needs some explaining. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is faithful. And in the ESV... At the end of verse 13, it says, The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. This stanza is missing in the New American Standard and in the New King James Version. It's not included in any of the earliest English Bible translations. The NIV and the Holman Christian Standard add this 
verse to the end of verse 13. This stanza to the end of verse 13 within the text. But in the ESV, it's in brackets. So what's the deal there? What's, what's going on with this? There's a little bit of, little bit of uh, scholarship here that we're going to talk about. I'm going to really try and not make this too academic because this is my wheelhouse. This is what I live for. I love this kind of craziness. Um, this verse is found in several ancient Psalms scrolls that were found in the Qumran caves near the Dead Sea. It was also found in the Septuagint and in a Syriac manuscript, and it's also found in a medieval Hebrew manuscript and in the Vulgate. So we've got a bunch of manuscripts, a bunch of old documents that have this verse in there, that have this stanza at the end of verse 13 in there. The Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scroll evidence is really important because it may be evidence and it may witness to an earlier text that we don't have that states that this stanza should be in this psalm. Now, here's the rub, though. It could also point to an earlier witness that was trying to help out David and insert that stanza because there is a missing letter in the acrostic. The noon, the in, for Nix, right? That letter is missing in this acrostic poem. So somebody could have helpfully said, oh, David just, he wasn't thinking straight. I'm going to add it. And he put it in there. It's possible. The evidence is so finely balanced within the, the scholarly community that the scales don't really tip in either direction. That's why you have some English translations that have it, some English translations that don't. So what do we do with this? Some of our English Bibles have this verse, some don't. Should we question our modern English translations? Do we, do we question the Bible that's in our lap right now? No, absolutely not. We have absolutely no reason to question the veracity or validity of the Bible you hold in your hands. It is faithful and true. What we have is the sentiment of the second half of verse 13 is fully in line with the sentiment that is recorded in this psalm and in the Bible as a whole. The sentiment is there. Nothing has been added to our understanding of who God is that isn't already present in this psalm and in the Bible as a whole. Nor is anything missing that we would need to know about who God is from this psalm or the Bible as a whole. So nothing's added, nothing's taken away. If it were not there, basically, nothing changes about our understanding of who God is or what he does, whether or not this stanza is present. It doesn't help us, nor does it hinder our faith and trust in God. If you're reading the ESV or the Holman Christian or the NIV, you just get a bonus. That's it. God is faithful. So, we've seen who God is. Now, let's look at what God does. This is your second point on the outline. I want to show you four actions of God in the time we have remaining. Four actions of God. These, these four actions we're going to go through rather quickly. Action number one, Yahweh provides. Yahweh provides. Look at verses 14 to 16. 
He provides in four different ways. In the first half of verse 14, the Lord sustains all who falls. He sustains. He continually takes care of those who stumble and fall. Remember the, the tale of the Good Samaritan? God sustained that, Samar- that man through the generosity of the, of the Samaritan. The second half of verse 14, he restores. He lifts those who have fallen. He puts them back on their feet. He lifts them up. Every time you sin and you confess your sin, God forgives that sin and restores you. 1 John 1, 9. When you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He restores. Verse 15, he provides. Our good God gives good gifts to his people, especially when they need it, including daily bread. Does it remind you of any prayer in Scripture? Maybe Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Lord's Prayer? He provides. And then lastly, he satisfies. Whatever God provides for his people will meet their very need. He answers prayer in this way when he opens his hands to take care of his people. In that, we find satisfaction. If we are not satisfied, what we have are man-made desires and an attempted manipulation at God to meet our desires. Because God gives good gifts, sometimes in very unexpected ways. He allows us to be able to move to an area of the country that we want to move to by taking a job away. He consolidates 27 jobs into one in a different church. God is good, and God provides. Secondly, not only does God provide... Yahweh perfectly acts. He perfectly acts. You see this in verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. We need to see that. We need to see his righteousness and his kindness in everything that he does. We need to know that and we need to trust in that. Everything he does in our lives is perfect for our good and his glory. Everything. He moves people. He causes us to trust him more through difficult situations and circumstances. And obviously, we as a church family see that illustrated for us right in front of us with the Turners and the Firehouses. We see that. Yahweh provides. Yahweh perfectly acts. And thirdly, Yahweh pays attention. He pays attention to us. Look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. He is ready to save. He is ready to save. Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 23, says this. Gather yourselves and come Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them counsel together. Who has announced this from of old? 
Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. If you do not know this God in a personal way today, this God of creation, because your relationship with him has been skewed by sin, you have a Savior in Christ the Lord. Trust in him. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Repent and turn. Turn to God. Turn to Jesus Christ. Trust in his forgiveness and he will save. He is ready to save. He is mighty to save. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ for salvation. Not only does God provide, perfectly make decision and pay attention to us, but fourthly and lastly, Yahweh protects. Once Yahweh has acted to save you, you will never be lost again. Look at verse 20. The Lord keeps all who love him. And if the Lord is going to keep you, who can take you out of his hand? Answer, no one. No one. Jude 24 and 25 says it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Once you are God's, you are his forever. But it is not so with the wicked, as you see in the second half of verse 20. But all the wicked, he will destroy. In judgment, God's wrath is going to be poured out on those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you will be eternally separated from the presence of God in hell into eternal destruction where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Our God is great. Our God is to be highly praised. Our God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, great in hesed, good to everyone, faithful in his works, gracious in his deeds, righteous in his ways, and gracious in his acts. What does he do as a result of all of this? He helps those who fall. He raises up the oppressed. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry. He saves. He guards those who love him. And then he destroys the wicked. And that is the story of the New Testament. That is the story of Christ. That is what the apostles write about. From Matthew to Revelation. What David has said in this psalm must be our daily personal experience. God is so worthy of our praise that we should never cease extolling his name. Never. He is great and therefore greatly to be praised. His sovereignty is unsearchable, far beyond our human comprehension. 
His incomparable glory produces wonder and astonishment that overwhelm us. We see glimpses of that in Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and elsewhere. Revelation 4 and 5. His mighty deeds induce within us awe-filled worship that must be offered up to God forever. If you don't know the God described in this psalm, is your problem that you need more faith? Because if you do, ask God and he will grant you that faith. Or is it that you need a greater vision of who God is and what he does? Will you pray with me? Father God,